Welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast, where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Mike. Hey folks, this is Mike from Storytelling with Data, and I want to start today's podcast with a story. Back in 2016, I was attending a conference and we were at the tail end of it. Some session where I was supposed to be doing group work with a bunch of people I didn't know. Not exactly the most engaging session I'd ever been to, but across the room, I spotted an English fellow whose work and name I had become familiar with over the course of my time looking at people's visualizations online. So rather than commit the rest of my limited time to this group work, I made my way over to him and ended up having a lovely 45-minute conversation about cricket. This was my introduction to Neil Richards, who is our guest today. Neil is a well-known figure in the data visualization community. He has been a Tableau visionary for four terms. He is a former member of the executive committee of the Data Visualization Society and is on the executive board of the Viz for Social Good campaign. He's here today to talk about a new book that he has out called Questions in DataViz, a design-driven process for data visualization. Neil, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for having me on. I remember that conversation really well. I don't remember everything I spoke to you about cricket, but I was wondering if we if we talk about how we met then, and it's so great to remember it straight away in the introduction. Yeah, it was. it's always good to meet people in person, especially at those conferences, because when we see people's work online, you get a sense of what they're interested in or what they're doing, but you don't get a sense of their thought process or what goes into it or why they are doing what they're doing. And I'm curious to know actually how you ended up doing what you're doing. I know you spent a lot of your career as a market analyst before you got into this. So how did you become familiar with this endeavor of data visualization? Yeah, you're right. I spent about 20 years in market research. And although I was involved in data, I was absolutely not involved in anything visual. Back in the day, it used to be reporting charts. No, not charts. It used to be produced reporting tables upon tables of just numbers. It was numbers on the left, numbers across the top, and every number by every number. And we would print them off and we would make decks of about 400 pages and Back in the early days before everyone had email, they would go on the back of a motorbike courier and go somewhere else in London. And it was soul destroying. It was okay because I was a numbers guy. I was analytically minded. I didn't mind doing it. But as soon as they left the building, I didn't know what insights were in there. I didn't know whether the clients found the results of our market research surveys interesting, whether it's what they wanted, whether it wasn't. And things got a little bit more modern. Things went by email. I did a bit more survey programming. But essentially, there still wasn't that ability just to see what the client could see. So fast forward to the end of my market research time, and I was in a, a um, consultancy where we found, we did a little bit of reporting in PowerPoint, and so we'd start to do something a little bit more visual. My boss found Tableau, and he said, well, what, what do you think of this? And I had a, a play with it, and I put some of the results in, and Tableau wasn't great with market research survey data at the time. You needed to know an expert like Steve Wexler to get anywhere with it. So I didn't necessarily get anything great from it. 
But I got some stuff straight away. I got in, I dragged, I dropped, I saw bar charts, I saw pink and blue for male and female. I did all the wrong things, but I just got visual stuff right in front of me. I thought, this is great. And we didn't really figure out how to use it at that particular agency, but by that time I was hooked. It, it was when I took it away and looked at data that I understood. Once I took some house prices data, things that meant something to me at the time, and put them in and got something visual and got some analytical findings, that's when I started to see how much I would really enjoy the combination of analysis and visual creativity that this might be able to bring me. So essentially I hunted that kind of role and was able to move into different analytical roles, which allowed me to use Tableau, which is my BI tool of choice to become more involved in data visualization. I was learning on the job, but because I found this new field that really interested me, I was looking to see what else I could do, finding how I could challenge myself, finding who the people were I respected in the industry, people who were doing stuff that I really liked, and looking to see how I could be influenced by them, whether that was actually sort of trying to emulate some of the work that they could do, maybe sort of trying to do some of the more creative stuff that I saw that I wasn't being able to do at work. And so essentially I was able to dovetail those two things, be using it sort of sensibly and professionally at work, but within the constraints of it not being 100% of my role to start with and getting involved in as many of the initiatives that I could see or I could think of that would, that would increase my own experience. So you were able to determine your own pace when you were working on things for your own personal enjoyment, but all along you were also building the skills you'd need professionally. And as you say, you're learning from the people who are out there sharing their work in public, talking about how to achieve things, being more creative. And at some point, you had become known enough, well-regarded enough that you also started to contribute to this body of knowledge publicly, and you started your own blog. I don't know whether I've known particularly when I started it, but I, was, I noticed that people were writing blogs and people were writing blogs as a way or to use a sort of cliche, be like to explain their journey or to note their journey. And I, I like that idea. It meant to me that if ever I wanted to put a blog post out, then I would sort of need to challenge myself and I would need to think, what have I done? What have I done differently? What's been a new learning for me or a new question to me or a whole new bit of finding out to me that I've done since the last time I posted and ideally as part of this most recent piece of work that I put out. So. It was just something that I was happy to do. And it was an incentive to keep going, an incentive to keep learning, an incentive to keep posting. I didn't really need an incentive because it had become a hobby in the same way that other people might paint or write or have their own sort of creative output. That's what I would do. And essentially, it was the first creative output I'd ever had because it was the first medium I'd, I'd been able to use to do something creatively because I can't paint, I can't, I'm not very good at it's down to drawing or writing poetry or playing music, anything like that. So uh, that was, that's why I very much enjoyed it and enjoyed the process of writing the blog as well. Well, I think it's interesting the way that you chose to frame the blog speaks to your inherent modesty, which is you didn't say, here's the blog, here's why you should do things the way I do them, or here's the direction you should take. It's questions in DataViz. Here's a question to consider. Here's how I approached it, but everything is open for discussion. So it's that questions in data viz framing that I think mm. is interesting and set that writing apart from other writing that was available at the time. 
I think in a way it was lucky. In a way, the, one of the reasons it made it to questions in database was because I felt I didn't know what the answers were. And I enjoyed trying to find out. And often one of the, one of the sort of in jokes and cliches at the time and probably still is then is most of the answer to most of the questions is it depends, that kind of thing. It's very difficult with a, a few exceptions to say, this is what you should do. This is best practice. And even if you agree what best practice is, a lot of what I'd like to consider is, isn't it quite cool to do something that isn't best practice? So it's, it's very rare that there is an, an answer. And as I wrote the blog and as I sort of developed that into the book, I think there's probably very few questions that I pose that I actually answer. And a few that I do answer and then I contradict myself or I might answer early in the chapter and say, this is probably what you think. And then by the time I get to the end, my conclusion might be, hmm, it's not as simple as I first thought. And I think because that's the journey you face as you go through data visualization and learning, I was quite pleased to to make that kind of the way that I structured my, my blog as well. When you're creating something, it's always good to have constraints to help with your creativity. If you have no constraints at all, it's very difficult to know what to do. And the, the very fact that even every blog post or every topic, I'd set myself at unwittingly a constraint of, right, we're going to make this into a question. So, you know, already that kind of would help my creativity the way I wrote or would give me ideas of how to, how to formulate what I might want to say. I like that you were mentioning how you often would contradict yourself because something that you had written in the book itself, what if we could remove restraints, might that allow for even more creativity? So sometimes when you're adding constraints, that's forcing creativity on you. And sometimes by removing constraints, you're allowing yourself even more creativity. So I guess it's all in how you're approaching something. Are you giving yourself the permission to be as creative as possible within what it is that you're doing? That's right. And I recently just spoke with Ali Torben, and she's doing a whole po podcast series all about creativity. And it, I was quite nervous to do it because she obviously spoke to lots of people and lots of people had different ideas of what makes them creative. What do you think creativity is? What are your rituals help make you creative? And it, it's such an interesting topic. It's probably one of many things that you can't say do this and you will be creative or stop doing this and it'll make you uh, more creative. It's one of those things that if you, it's even a hard thing to define because to create something is just to make something. And that doesn't, that in itself doesn't imply what we might think of as creativity. Yeah. I think you might even find more than one example in the book where I might have covered it from <laughs> one end and I might have covered it from another end when I wrote a different chapter on another day and thought, yeah, okay. Both of these hold true. Both of these are different points on a spectrum. And it's up to you to consider what do you think, or you know, are all points along here valid? So the evolution of the blog into this book, who is this intended for? I guess kind of intended for me or people like me, or maybe me of two, three, four years ago, people who have made a start in data visualization and uh, maybe work using the BI tool or something like that have got a, a good grasp of the basic principles and ordinary, more well-respected charts. And they were thinking, how can I take this to the next level? Or not necessarily how can I take it to the next level in terms of, um, um, of skill for what I might do in my job? How do I even need to think to get to what some of these other guys are doing? How can I use my BI tool to do something a bit more like that book there of coffee table visualizations or to emulate that guy there or that woman there who I've just seen. It's for people who are looking to get ideas or to beach about some of the thoughts that you might come across or some of the inspiration that you might see just to do things that are a little bit more unconventional. 
And some of the stuff that I put in is more unconventional than others. There's a sort of sliding scale of normalness, for, for want of a better word. One of the topics that I hadn't really thought about that much was the topic of shapes. So when we're using markers, oftentimes it's circles or sometimes we know this is one reason why people like pies and curves is because circles are appealing to us. But you went into lots of other possibly underutilized shapes in data visualization. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. And if there are any that you find a particular affinity for in your own work. I think in particular, I spoke about triangles and I, I was inspired to do that. I think I saw a tweet by John Schwabish who said, Hey, I've noticed there's a, a couple of visualizations around sort of using triangles. You don't see that very often. What do you think? And that to me, and anything where I see perhaps other people have a discussion or something unusual, I, I feel sort of validate some of my thoughts sometimes. And I thought, actually, I've used triangles in, in this visualization. And I've used it here, but for a completely different reason. And as soon as you think of reasons why you might use a particular shape, then you start to think less of reasons why you might not. And with any shape, you have the difficulties of perception, the perception of area, the perception of, okay, if I see a triangle that's that shape, what is it representing? Am I looking at the area? Am I looking at the, the height? And if so, which particular one of these three sides am I looking at? And so you have to think, all right, if absolute instant analytical recognition is not what you're looking for, then here's... 15 quite cool reasons why using the triangle might be good for the visual impact, for the for the metaphor, maybe it might look like trees or it might look like a, a reservoir valley or something like that. Or it might just look cool. I mean, it's probably not right for a man <laughs> in his 50s to say something looks, looks cool. My wife tells me off in using that word all the time and you're too old to use it. If you see something that's done in triangles that you haven't seen before done in that particular way, that can be a plus point if it, if it outweighs the minuses. And as with all these things, it just, I, I like to come up with examples, examples of my, uh, once I started looking at triangles, for example, I was contacted by Zion Armstrong who said, look, in our particular branch of visualization, materials science, we use uh, triangles all the time. It's right up there in our familiarity to look at these particular triangle graphs, to look at compositions, of three different metals. So what you might think is a downside, perhaps of unfamiliarity, is an upside in certain other fields. So I think that's the kind of investigation that I gained a lot of fun from and gained a lot of just, yeah, a, a lot of extra knowledge. And so it would always make me think this particular shape is an option. If I want to do a visualization in a certain way, don't rule out a triangle straight away. Don't rule out a circle straight away. Hey, don't rule out anything straight away. If there's the benefit to it being a useful metaphor for what you're showing, then maybe that's the right thing. I know that you had shown examples of triangles as a funnel, maybe, where you're filling up how much of the triangle is filled up. And then I think it's an equilateral triangle, right? Mm. So what goes at the top and what goes at the bottom? Do we have the base at the bottom and the point at the top? Or do we use it like a funnel? Is the point at the bottom? And these are the questions that you end up asking yourself. Once you start to break out of always using the same thing for the same purpose. If you're not interested in the absolute analytical recognition or the instantaneous analytical recognition, then that is when you might choose these other options. So let's shift gears a little bit because I want to talk about your experience of visualizing in public. Most of the people who work in data visualization, their work is visible to their colleagues or their clients, but not really to a broader audience or not to an audience of people who are 
specifically interested in data visualization. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, in your experience, some of the benefits that you found in taking on this challenge of learning, visualizing in public, or expanding the boundaries of what you were capable of doing by putting your work out there for other people to see. Yeah, in my case, it's been nothing but beneficial. Being able to put things out in public, it's a two-way process. I guess I started, just as I was starting Tableau and in my data visualization career, I started to see what other people who were learning or who were more expert than me, but who were still improving, what they were putting out in public. And I would see, this was right at the start of Makeover Monday, which is a well-known initiative that ran for many years that, you know, as a data set would be released and people would be encouraged to, to visualize it, to improve on it, or to make their own visualization and have released this in public. And I thought if people are doing this, I could do this. I could join this. And I noticed that, you know, we talk about releasing it in public, but we're still very much talking about within a community of data visualization people. There's big, scary Reddit forums out there. I haven't gone anywhere near. Perhaps there are bigger communities that are less forgiving there. But I always found that within the community that I was aware of, the community that's built up around that and around data visualization as a whole, that people would be encouraging. I know that if 90% of people ignored what I put out, they probably didn't like it or they probably thought that should have been a bar chart. But it was always encouraging to get encouraging feedback and sometimes that constructive feedback. I'm not saying that you do it for the blow of people loving what you do. You do it as well for the people coming up with, with their own take on what you could have done better. But again, I think also doing this in public, it allowed for a portfolio and it allowed for, I'm going to say a journey again, which is that real cliche, but it allowed for not only for you to see how you were improving and that learning and becoming more creative, but for other people to see that as well. So that helps professionally when it comes to coming up with a portfolio, what you can do. And it helps within your reputation externally as well for people seeing everything that you've done over the years. So I certainly recommend it. I want to say it can be difficult. I I haven't found it difficult. I don't want to say sweetness and light for for everyone that everyone will will give you 100% wonderful feedback. But I think it's something that I would encourage and bear in mind that there are far more people supportive and encouraging and delighted to see uh, more people um, take part. Because ultimately... And this is why I, I write the book and I come and talk about this and I do all this stuff. I think data visualization is great. The more people that I see take part in it and take part in the community and whisk through and get really good or do inspiring stuff, the more everyone gains, the more I gain, the more the whole field gains. And it is an on-ramp when you have these programs like you were talking about, Makeover Monday. There are many other ones out there that are good stepping stones for people who are getting used to visualizing in public because they are provided, in most cases, a data set to work on. You're provided a group of, if not colleagues, at least like-minded or similarly directed individuals who are tackling the same challenge at the same time. And so you learn how other people are doing them. This is a limitation that inspires creativity because you have to work within this time box or within this data set. One thing which I feel I should mention is the Storytelling with Data initiative. And the very first one of those that came out, the very first week one, was basically to do an annotated line chart. And so I thought, okay, never mind this weird stuff that I do. I wanted to do a really good annotated line chart. 
So I picked something that was relative to me. I picked the popularity of uh, the name Neil, but I made that into a bar chart and I thought I'd followed all the rules and, and I got, I, I got really good reaction for it. I think it's included in one of John Trobish's books is a really good example of a line chart. And it's almost, it's what I'm most proud of because I have somewhere an example of me trying to do a really sensible, well-designed business chart. Now, albeit I picked the name Neil in there as a subject because I had to have a little bit of uniqueness. And that, that gets used as a good example. So it, I think it's important, that, A, the storytelling with data initiative is another great one, but to remember that it's a, a, an opportunity to practice the best practice as well as it is the creative. But you, Neil, also have gone outside of this as well. You talked about you got interested in this by using cricket data. You talked about yes. the home price data. I know you have other interests you visualized, mathematics, chess, 90s yeah. Britpop, and the associated album covers. There are all of these personal interests that you explored. And I wondered if you could go into a little bit of how you found the inspiration from your own experiences driving your public visualization creation journey. If I have an idea of something that I want to do, I love actually coming up with an idea of a design first and then maybe thinking of some data that might fit it, which obviously I acknowledge is not the sort of standard business way around, but it's a great sort of creative exercise. It's been a lot of fun. I usually want to do something where I don't mind if I have to stare at that data for a few weekends. There are People can do things in an hour in Alteryx, which I do over weekends of copying and pasting and, and chilling down it in Excel. If I have a method I know that works, that is relatively low tech, but that I don't mind, and I'm going to find the data interesting, then that's what I'll do. And sometimes, sometimes I'll go down a rabbit hole in that data. I remember visualizing sort of all the uh, number ones of the 1980s, and that gives my age away because it was very much my era. And it took far longer than it should have done because I think, hey, I remember that one. And I'd go and listen to the song or I'd go and look at that band and what are Blondie doing now or you know, whatever happened to that group. So for personal projects, I think it's important to visualize the data that you're going to have fun with and mean something to you. So there's also a lot to be said about personal projects, such as Peace for Social Good or something like that, where you, you have the additional in incentive and of knowing that this data set that you're going to spend some time looking at and is going to be really useful to somebody rather than just a thing of interest, let's say. You mentioned Viz for Social Good. First of all, what is that for people who aren't familiar with it? Okay, Viz for Social Good, which you can go to vizforsocialgood.com. It's been around for, I think Chloe Sang launched, it's that very same day that you, you and I went off to talk about cricket and then eventually it took on a life of its own. We're a group of volunteers all around the world, literally, have huge global presence now, where somewhere between six and 10 times a year, we will help out the clients. A client will come to us with a data set, wants to be a non-profit client. And usually a client that doesn't have data visualization capabilities or is looking to find something within their figures or a, a call for action. It's a great opportunity for anyone who signs up, we should have about four to six weeks to look at that data set come up with something that's going to be really useful for that nonprofit. And more and more now, we have a great opportunity to actually jump on a call with our clients so they can actually talk through their dashboard or their final visualization as they do that. Yeah, it's a, we have nonprofit status now. So we've moved on from being a sort of online community to an official nonprofit. And it's a great opportunity. Sign up, improve your own skills as you can with any public project that we've been talking about to improve your, your technique, your skills. It can be done using any visualization method that you like. 
I like the Biz for Social Good campaign. I like the idea. It cements the notion that data visualization can, in some small way, change the world. And mm -hmm. ideally, what we are trying to do when we are visualizing data is communicate things to people. We're trying to get them interested or informed or motivated to do something. On the other hand, you mentioned that you have a presentation that you've given multiple times called Celebrate the Unnecessary. Maybe you could talk about that side of visualizing data as well. Yeah, I think with, with Celebrate the Unnecessary, it is almost the other side. It's the fact that, does it matter? How can I put this? I think especially if you want to do something for fun, if you want to do something that you're really going to enjoy, then your audience almost becomes yourself or the audience becomes people like yourself who are going to appreciate it. And you know that's going to exclude a lot of people. And by celebrate the unnecessary, I mean, you know, do something about who said the most number of words in different friends episodes. Do something about how many times does the letter J come up in this. Okay, I'm going for tangent now, but just visualize things that it doesn't actually, the data set almost doesn't matter. And it's for, it's for fun. It's fine to visualize things that aren't going to change the world as well. If that's not your brief, if that's not the data set you have, if you want to do something, whether it's for creative reasons or artistic reasons, or for your own learning reasons. Now, let's go back to the example I said now. It's, you could say the popularity of the name Neil over the last hundred years is equally unnecessary. Nobody really needs to know that. It doesn't have to be a particular sort of pop culture or anything like that. But yeah, when I say celebrate the unnecessary, it, it's really about the fact that your data set is what you use as the medium for data visualization. And that's why I fall in love with data visualization. It allows me not to use a paintbrush because I'm useless at that or pens and paper, but to use data to create a picture, to create something that might look like a poster or that might can go on a wall. And it almost doesn't matter what that data is. I love the fact that it's data because if it were just coming from me, I wouldn't know where to start. Celebrate the fact that it doesn't really matter that the world doesn't need to see. I borrowed the phrase from Andy Kirk, and I love the fact he just did this passion project on all the episodes of Seinfeld. And there's no one better, more supportive, more professional than Andy. But when he wanted to visualize all the episodes of Seinfeld, that's what he did. And he put it in a book and he raised money for charity. And he said a completely unnecessary visualization. So it's probably yet another example of me being validated in what I do by somebody I consider a, a bigger and better name in the industry and thinking, yeah, actually, it doesn't matter if people think this is unnecessary. Celebrate it, enjoy it, have fun. There will be a small element of your audience who will enjoy, enjoy that fun with you. And you mentioned that Andy had to go and watch all of the episodes. He had to catalog all of this data because yeah. he was looking for something specific or actually a number of specific dimensions that he was cataloging. I know that you did a project not similar to Seinfeld Chronicles, but one where you had to also go through an entire raft of data over the course of weeks and catalog it yourself. I've probably done that for a number of things. I did it for one of my favorite albums, an obscure album by Damien Might Be Giants. And I basically took all the words and I selected different data sets sometimes it's words and sentences and syllables and letters. And of course, it's entirely unnecessary. And I've done that with books. Sometimes your data set could be every word in a book and it might need you to read that book again. If it's your favorite book, then it doesn't matter. It, it might be unnecessary in terms of analytic information that you're putting out to the world, but there's so much to be gained from doing it for other reasons. So yeah, anything like books, music, TV, that 
if that data isn't there, if that data isn't there in the, the detail that you need it, sometimes you, you have to go and collect that data yourself. People contain multitudes. They can care quite a bit about pressing social issues of the day, but they can also care deeply about the ins and outs of the many seasons of the Real Housewives franchise. And maybe they want to look deeply at that and that is entertaining. People decide to run marathons also, but it requires a lot of training. And maybe the training is part of the enjoyment, not just the completion of the goal, but also it's the work that goes into it is part of the feeling of validation that you get from yourself at the end. If you have to collect all this data, well, you know you're creating something that is unique because nobody has collected this data. And I like that analogy, actually. There's such a wide variety of what you can do in data visualization. And that's even if you're constrained, constraints again, by just using one particular visualization tool, which I mostly do because it's the only one I know. I love the fact that there's such a wide variety that you can do. Uh, and it doesn't matter if, that, if the tool is Excel or the tool is Power BI. It's exploring what you can do, the wide variety of outputs that you can do, and the fun that you can have while doing it, really. Going back to the book, the last third of the book contains a lot of your, I would say, the most creative, the most distinctive, atypical visualizations in your portfolio. And I think that there are a number of folks who might not have seen visualizations of this type before. I think by design, these are bespoke creations. But there's always going to be a balance when you're creating something of, do I emphasize the aesthetics and the beauty of it, as is the case for a lot of the cover art, album cover art inspired visualizations you create, versus clarity and accessibility, where some of them are, not to be pejorative about it, but they are impenetrable without doing a lot of deep dive analysis of what are these meant to mean? So how do you figure out for yourself where you want that balance, that fulcrum to be when you create something? I can answer that with, it depends. But really, (laughs) in a way, sometimes I actually like the latter. If you're putting something which you think is going to be creative and actually pretentiously or otherwise going to think it's almost a bit of data art, then I just want them to see almost literally the data, but not the metadata or to, to sit and to do the work of thinking, what does that mean? How did that get there? And to actually perhaps have to, so it goes against the idea of a chart must be digested in however many seconds it is. Part of the whole enjoyment of it is if this is something that I'm interested in, I'm going to look in and understand what does red mean? What does yellow mean? What does the circle mean? Et cetera, et cetera. And obviously if it's, if you're not part of the intended audience then you'll scroll on to the next thing. But that's not always the case. Some of the stuff that I have in that sort of third chapter, although it's a spoken unusual, I still do want it to be accessible. I developed a, a tile map, a hex map of every county in the US. And it's, I forget now, it's three or 4,000 different counties. Now, I want that to be accessible and understandable and readable. I present it along with a whole load of the pros and cons and limitations, not least the fact that this English guy thinks he knows how to put 4,000 <laughs> US counties in the right place. We know how difficult that is with the 50 tiles of a hex map. So there are going to be probably some more glaring examples within the 4,000 or so different counties. But I think I learn a lot doing it. I think I, I get a lot right. I think there is a case for using it sometimes. And I think in those cases where you do decide you want to use it, I've shown that it can be done. And I hope that when I present it and put it out there, that it's readable and understandable. And in these cases, I will put a legend that explains where the, the state outlines are, etc., and what's on there. So it's there are there are 
examples where I know that I'm making my reader work for it a lot. It's always a case of considering your audience. So I think when your audience is the, is the general public or in business case or in so many situations, you need to be following those principles. You need to be making it as accessible as possible. If your audience is, I think, as I said, as described earlier, people like me, people I want to in, enjoy this, enjoy the impact of it, but not necessarily take an instant analytical hit from it, then you can prioritize the way it looks over the way it's interpreted. When you speak about those tile maps, of course, all maps are abstractions of reality to some point. So there's always going to be trade-offs. And I think one of the most controversial non-maps that you had ever produced had to do with pet ownership in the UK. If you want to talk about that experience a little bit. That was fun. The particular example that I used was something that looked like a map of the UK, but wasn't. And I can see how it's obviously going to be confusing. What I think we looked at was the ownership of pets. So rather than have a unit chart, they're mostly dogs and cats and hamsters and fish or whatever. I decided to arrange these units so that it roughly looked like the British Isles. And then I think I had the ownership of fish, so it roughly looked like the sea surrounding it. And if you were to look at it, you know, all the gestalt principles or everything in your mind would be telling you that it looks like I'm telling you, pointing out exactly where the cats and dogs live, or exactly where the fish live, the sea. Whereas I wasn't doing that. I was, it was a visual joke. It was a bit of trickery which I had a lot of fun doing. And many of my visualizations, whether they're serious or whether they're not, come from me getting out to pencils and graph paper and hexagonal graph paper and thinking, how can I make a shape out of this? How can I decide exactly where I want each tile to be and then go back and do that with my visualization? In the end, yeah, that, that was an example, part of something where I said, do we take visualization too seriously? And I think you always need to be clear is this something that I want to produce and take to a pet food owner or take to the board and say, hey, look, the UK has got this many dogs and this many cats. Maybe we should be making a business decision that says release more dog food in this area of the country. Then, of course, you're not going to do that. You're going to have something much more sensible. You're going to have either a, a, a more realistic map or you're going to have more sensible bar charts or something like that. But if that's not your intention, if your intention is just to do something which might give you an idea of the the difference in ownership between different animals, but you've decided to arrange it in the shape of the UK because it worked, then I think for an exercise of let's do something fun with this data, I feel like it hit the spot and it taught me a few technical lessons. It also taught me lessons as if to say, look, just you always need to be careful. I hope it made for an interesting chapter. I'm absolutely fine if anyone's decision on reaching the end of the chapter was no, I didn't like that. I don't think I would, don't think I would have done that. I'd like to think it was, I see his point, but I still disagree. That's absolutely fine. It, it, it was a fun discussion point. It's certainly provocative and intentionally, you could call it cheeky if you wanted to, because you, you knew what you were doing. But there's also a, a bit of genius to figuring out the proportions of the different dimensions that you were showing and figuring out then how do I construct this layout to actually make this appear to be the British Isles. So it is so intentional, but also at the same time, so much not what it appears to be at first glance. And it is almost the opposite direction of what we would do in a business communication to your point of if your audience wants to know specifically, 
hey, where do I ship all of the hamsters? Because I want to make sure that they are being sold to people who prefer hamsters. Then <laughs> this is not how you would show that information to them. No, I, I put a big, I put a hamster dot uh, on East Anglia. And nobody has figured out in six years. And the reason I did that is it's because it's closest to Amsterdam. I, I put visual black hamster, I, I put word gags in there that nobody knows about. Yeah, maybe I was trolling my audience a little bit too far. <laughs> Bigger question based on this, is there a wrong way to visualize data? Yeah, I think there are wrong ways of visualizing data. There aren't many wrong ways of visualizing data. But the one thing that usually I bulk at still is, for example, bar charts that don't go down to zero. I think there are very few justifications of doing that. But, that, you know, that's one of, of only very few things that I think are wrong. Storytelling with data, the, your brand has come around to thinking, well, pie charts are all right sometimes. And I agree, 3D visualization is all right sometimes. But I don't think there's usually wrong ways of doing things. There's better and there's worse. But I encourage people to consider most ways and then think of why certain ways are better than others and to not truncate their pie charts. That's my philosophy, really. You had spent a lot of time working with the Data Visualization Society. As I said, you were on the executive board for a while. This is a group that is meant to help people who work in data visualization or aspire to do some sort of data visualization in their professional careers. So the big question I have is, do you think of data visualization as a career in itself or more as a skill to have in a broader career? It can definitely be both depending on how you look at it. I actually think there's an overlap, really. It's an industry and it's a skill as well. As you progress in the industry, you progress in your skills. Some people will have careers doing data visualization, whether it's for consultancies or for companies where that is the job that they do. And other people will work for clients and clients where they have data and they need to visualize the data. It depends on your journey. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. A fair fair answer. (laughs) Well, as we're coming up to the end of our time together, I just was curious to know what is next on the horizon for you? I don't know what's on my horizon. I have a lot of fun saying that I've just published my first book. I have no no plans of doing another book, but never say never. I would say professionally, my, my passion at the moment is almost diametrically opposed to what I put in the book, which is really promoting data fluency and data literacy and seeing how I can really help improve this throughout my um, current organization. That's certainly where I like to focus a lot of my study and my talking and my passions at the moment. I feel like I came late into this profession and I feel like I'm still learning so much from it every day and still have so much to sort of contribute every day that I don't know what's coming next, but I can't see myself going away from it anytime soon. So I think let's enjoy my my five minutes of fame of having a book out and then see what happens after Christmas. <laughs> All right. Well, I won't rush you away from what's happening in the moment. Let's enjoy the present. The book itself is called Questions in Data Biz, a design-driven process for data visualization. It is out now worldwide, question mark? I believe it's worldwide. Yes, certainly. I think the publisher will ship worldwide. So where can people find out more about the book or get a copy of it for themselves? You can certainly get it from the well-known online bookstores that we all know and love. It's published by Routledge. So if you go to routledge.com and search for that, and you will probably come to the site where they can actually deliver it worldwide. And where can people go to learn more about you or anything you eventually do decide to do once we stop living in this present moment? 
I absolutely. Well, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Well, people are still on Twitter. That's true. Or I'm at the Neil Richards. Or you can check out my blog, which is also called questionsindatabiz.com. Else you want to promote before we wrap up for the day? I don't think so. No. And it's probably a bit too early to promote my second book, whatever that might be. No. Yeah, nothing more to promote other than and thank you for shouting out Biz for Social Good, which will always be close to my heart. And check out the Data Visualization Society as well. It's yeah. a fun time to be involved with them because we have the Information's Beautiful Awards coming up very soon. Check out the showcase there and see some amazing visualizations. All right, Neil, thank you very much for joining us today. Best of luck with the book. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time.